Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of your own personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling. And I'm Robin Allender. And we're back this week with a superb episode with uh, Jeremy Pritchard, who's the bassist in the band Everything Everything. Um, and this is, you know, one of my favourite ones we've ever done. Um, it was a really nice in in person one as well, which we're, you know, luckily those are sort of coming around more often. So it was a more, again a, a sort of beer and pizza one and a great evening. It was really good. I think we were both so jealous of his life because <laughs> <laughs> he plays in a really cool band. He's really handsome. He's really tall. <laughs> yeah. And he's got loads of lovely really bass nice. guitars. And he's really nice. Yeah. yeah. It was brilliant. No, it was fascinating to talk about because <laughs> Everything Everything is such a kind of interesting technical band. Mm. And I think that's where it got interesting with the Beatles chat because we were talking about kind of a lot of the intricacies, the technical things Paul McCartney's doing, elements of production and things. And yeah, it was just really, really fun. He's so passionate and knowledgeable as well. Yeah, and he really knows his onions, sort of mm. musically and historically. Um, and so, yeah, we did our first proper deep dive. I mean, we sort of, sort of skirted around Paul's bass playing, and we're both massive fans, but we've never done quite as deep a dive as into his sort mm. of melodic sensibilities and um, with that instrument. So that was really, really fascinating chat, and really, you know, really interesting to talk to someone who is a proper bassist and a brilliant mm. bassist, and for whom bass is such an integral part of everything everything but yeah not in a very conventional way and yeah they do tend to sort of snake around and they are their, very much their own melodic lines and stuff yeah um so it's a really there's a really interesting parallel with those and um yeah it was just i think a really really brilliant insight into into bass playing in general mm. i think we did touch on this as well about the idea that you know bass being the bass player was kind of the short straw when you're joining yeah. a band. But now as you get older, it's like, I love playing the bass and there's so much you can do mm. with it and it's so fun to lock in to a groove and everything. And, you know, the simplicity yeah. of it is, is is what makes it so interesting, you know? <laughs> and some of, yeah, it's some of the most fun lines to write as well mm. because, uh, you know, you can add a whole other dimension to a song, which is something we talk about with um, things like Baby, You're a Rich Man and mm. something in this podcast. Yeah. We also talk about Jeremy's sort of early influences, growing up listening to a lot of post-rock um, mm. and stuff like Slint and Tortoise, um, which are also quite big touchstones for us. So, But yeah, that, that was interesting, seeing how the Beatles is a very big influence on the band. Mm. Radiohead, we, we sort of mention as well, but yeah. those sort of um, quite cerebral and you know very complicated and very musically proficient bands yeah, in the early 90s yeah. and if you want to hear a uh, extended version of this episode you can join our patreon uh, where you can get ad free extended versions of every single podcast and there's a really good uh, extra section in this where we talk quite uh, in depth 
expanding on Jeremy's controversial Beatles opinion, oh, which yeah. is one of the all-time greats. It is so, a really good one, yeah. <laughs> and very controversial, I think. I don't know, though. I don't know if it is going to be that controversial because... I think a lot of people... I mean, we spend a lot of the time um, in this podcast trying to guess what it is because yeah. it gives us a hint at the beginning. But see if you got to the same conclusion that we did. But I think there's going to be people up in arms about that. <laughs> really? I don't know about that. <laughs> But yeah, um, it's a good one. So yeah, join, join the Patreon. Please do continue to leave nice reviews for us if you listen on Apple Podcast. Um, we get we're really thrilled when we get a, a good five star, and it really helps people mm. find the podcast and you know puts us up those Apple charts, and which you know helps people find us. So we're really grateful for that. You can follow us on the old social media. We haven't got any correspondence this week because it's quite a long episode, so we'll sort of crack on. But if you do want to get in touch, you can email us in the usual place by going to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact or emailing me jack at homespunsounds.com uh robin you got the guitar there <laughs> well I was, I was doing a thing where i was with we, we talked a lot this series about the lovely descending guitar lines mm-hmm. in uh beatles songs and how often they appear and this is um basically i, I listened to an elliot smith song recently and it's got it's. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the Beatles are a big influence on Elliot Smith, and he covered "Because" and everything. And mm-hmm. he, uh, this is a, there's a song he wrote called "Oh Well Okay," which is on XO, and it's got one of the best descending bits ever. Really, it starts like this. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a beautiful kind of the ambiguity of a minor seventh or a sixth. You know how they're the same chords, mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's so it's an A sixth, and it kind of goes down, or an F sharp minor seven, kind of goes down. But when it goes all the way down, it's back into F sharp, so it becomes the minor seven. It's so clever, mm. the kind of. That is really cool. And it's so Lennon White album, I think. Yeah, well, it's quite Michelle-y as well. Yeah. Um... And the, the amazing thing about that song as well is the kind of chorus end. So it's in A or F sharp minor, and it, the chorus ends on this E minor seven chord, and. When it goes to the instrumental, he starts the song again, but now in the key of E minor, because mm. he's got this E minor seven, so he starts the kind of. And, and so basically, he's modulated nearly like an entire octave, but without you noticing. So he's gone from yeah, I mean, a, a very to... strange key to end up in when you yeah. start in F sharp minor. Yeah, yeah, you start um, in F sharp minor and then you're in E minor, and then mm. what that does, and that's is... very uh, like Julia as well. That, yeah, uh, totally. Uh, yeah, I, t- I thought Julia. Thing. And then of course yeah. when when it gets to the last chorus, you're in this new key. So his voice is nearly an octave higher than it was at the start, and it just totally lifts the song. You know, so much higher, and it gives it this emotional yeah. intensity. And it's it's one of those things where it's like, that's Elliot Smith being so. I can't think of. Can you think of a Beatles song that's got a key change? I'm sure there is one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they do tend. Yeah, they don't. They definitely don't tend to sort of hop into the relative minor or, yeah. or relative major very often. And they certainly don't do sort of cheesy semitone key steps. No, but but, um, but that, I think that there's something. I think that song is so Lennon, but the kind of ingeniousness of it is very mm. McCartney, I think. You know, yeah. like, although, I you know, I, I think... And it's I mean, just it's so, undoubtedly Beatlesy, isn't yeah, it? So yeah, So instantly. 
And I just, um, it's such a great song, and we'll put it, it's on the playlist. We'll put it on the playlist, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I was listening to that last week and just thought, God, that's so good and so clever, but not in a way that you really know, you don't even notice it changes key, mm. you just notice it gets this new kind of level of intensity in the last chorus. And it's just, yeah, he was just a remarkable songwriter, really. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, so um, we have a, a, a ongoing playlist of all the songs that we mention on this podcast from every episode. So uh, you can go to our social media accounts at Personal Beatles on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that, and we'll post links to that. Um, we won't keep you any longer, as I say, every week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll be back at the end to sort of tease what's coming up. But um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, really hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Jeremy Pritchard's Personal Beatles. So this week we are delighted to be joined by Jeremy Pritchard. Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm really good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was nice of you to get in touch with us. And, uh, we oh, yeah, this is the thing. I actually asked to do this, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't, uh, isn't very cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, well, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm, it turns out I'm a huge fan. I heard the Laura Barton episode that you recorded and... Uh, I know Laura a little bit through various mutual friends and through music and stuff. And within 10 minutes of that episode, I'd messaged him on Instagram <laughs> and said, yeah, I want to do this. Nice. <laughs> and uh, to my great surprise, you actually let me. So That's here we great. are a week later. Yeah. No, if you don't know uh, Jeremy's work in the band Everything Everything, Robin and I are big fans of your output over the Thank last little decade or so. So mm. we, yeah, we were like, that was a bit of a no-brainer, really, wasn't mm. it? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, thanks, lads. So, I mean, you play bass in, in the band? I play for bass in everything, who, everything, who yeah. We, uh, we started a band in 2007, having finished university. I'd been at university with John. Mm. Um, he brought in a couple of his school friends, and we're still doing it 14 years later. Great. Um, that is pretty amazing. Which does feel like a long time now. What, what were you studying? Was it, were you doing music? We were doing music, yeah. Right. And Mike was doing music at um, Leeds College mm. of Music. Me and John were at Salford University. And then right. Mike moved to Manchester to join us. And was it production or like composition? It was all sorts. Yeah. Um, I got quite interested in the critical theory side of it. Right. Basically doing this sort of thing, mm. having a can and talking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, theorising. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which took me by surprise because it was. I kind of felt that I'd covered somewhat hubristically, I felt when I was 19 and I got to university, having had a year out, I thought... Oh, I've done all this. I know all this. Um, <laughs> and the only thing that was totally brand new to me was critical theory, right, which, right. Is, which is a strange yeah. discipline whereby you apply the criteria of French literary critics <laughs> yeah. to Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to begin with, I thought, what the hell is this, bollocks? Yeah. yeah. And, and, then, and then it's something clicked, and I became really fascinated with that. So I ended up doing a sort of dissertation... Um, it, through that medium, as mm, it were. Yeah. It's, it's funny how, like, can, you kind of... There's quite a lot of conspiracy theories, basically, around exactly what you did now, aren't there? Yeah. In terms of the <laughs> yeah. cultural Marxism kind yeah. of thing. Oh, they're just filling students' heads with this French bullshit kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I was very glad <laughs> to be jar-headed in that yeah, way. Yeah. But it's so weird, isn't it? Like, where did that come from? I suppose it's just come from... Oh, they're deconstructing everything. Like, what... What is the where, where what is the, yeah, yeah what is the root mm. of that conspiracy theory? I don't know, and I don't know why it would be a bad thing mm. to unpick mm. um, meaning, yeah. and significance, and yeah, uh, cultural significance. Um, why that would be, 
yeah. a threat yeah. to society. <laughs> I think the, the, there's just the thing that it's like, oh, you, you know, it's the Marxist readings, and you know, you end up the, the, the cultural Marxism is to do with like Hollywood, isn't it? They think like mm. Hollywood is pushing a Marxist. Mm. Is that mm. one of the lines? I don't know. Well, that sort of goes back to sort of McCarthyism. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. And that's where the roots are. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't do much uh, cultural Marxism in my music degree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> didn't really do where anything. Did you, where did you go? Well, I had a very similar time, and like, because I was at Leeds and oh, graduated really, yeah. the same year. Oh right, at Leeds Uni. So I did think because there were sort of people who that were, I mean, I think Alt J were in my yes. year to, yeah. at, mm. at Leeds, and then I did I, when I started listening to everything, everything. I did think back in at that time that one of you was. Somewhere around that scene. Yeah, mine so was, that makes sense. was at the College of Music, and I think his degree was accredited by Leeds University or something. Mm, right. Because, uh, yeah, I had a similar thing to you where I arrived there and I was like, oh, done all this. Yeah. But then yeah. I sort of stupidly jumped really into... Really <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a fault of, like, the gap between, like, the way music's taught in schools... That's true. ...and yeah. what university courses were, especially yeah. if you like did a level and did quite well at it mm. then you covered a lot of the bases in the first year is basically redoing a lot of stuff that that's true yeah. personally i had already done so i was I like because i'd done a lot of gigging i'd done a certain amount of mm. sort of miniature cobbled together tours and the the actual lifestyle of being in a band i'd kind of been living mm. at least in my head yeah. <laughs> since i was about 15 yeah. so it wasn't really yeah. It wasn't new to me to play with other people. It wasn't new to me to live that way, as it yeah. were. Mm. Um, so what was what was Jonathan studying then at that time? Was he was doing the same course as me, yeah. but he was more concentrating on the production side of it because he's always been quite an adept engineer, really, especially mm. in the sort of solipsistic way mm. on, on his own software, mm. on his own, producing himself, and composition. And as he famously claimed, and this is true, he never did anything, especially for an assignment. If we were told, you've got to compose something that incorporates this technique and this technique and this technique, or to produce something that incorporates this particular sound or this particular technique, yeah. recording technique, he would just go back through his own archives and find something that fitted the bill. <laughs> really? Yeah. And wow. so he never wrote anything, especially for the course. Yeah. And he came out with the highest composition mark. Really? That, oh, wow. yeah, that popular music and recording at Salford University had ever seen in those wow. days. I'd be surprised if he's been hipped to it since. But he was he was also amazingly amazingly arrogant. Really? It? You know, it's just yeah. like it was just easy. Wow. <laughs> I just had all this stuff already. <laughs> but you know, he he was like that. He was very talented at that time. So did you guys bond over I mean, you take your name from a radiohead track. Is that true or was that apocryphal? That was true, but we didn't realise. It was right, sub okay. it was completely subconscious. Right. Um and yeah, we did love Radiohead. We liked the the name because we, we liked it written down. We liked mm. the rhythm of it. There's a musicality to it, mm. and we liked the yeah. sort of sense of possibility and yeah. boundlessness and all that. And then we just put Kid A on one day and went, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> 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 Obviously, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems to work well as a kind of maximalist approach. Yeah, of exactly. Band, yeah, and I, I, I still like it. Actually, I yeah. still like it as a name. It's, it's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. And yeah. I certainly got sick of typing that word. <laughs> <laughs> did you bond over the Beatles tracks? As we well? did. We did. Mm. Um, if you're doing a music production course, does the kind of Beatles stuff come into it as well when you're learning kind of? things to do with like mixing or like uh, certainly compositionally yeah they would be 
referenced. Um, and I think on the production side, which I kind of peeled off from at some point during like the second year anyway, um, they, mu- they must have been held up as, as, as pioneering in that respect as well, because they just were. Mm. Mm. Um, but I definitely, I remember doing a presentation quite early on in the first year because nobody else put their hand up. <laughs> and when I had to kind of deconstruct Tomorrow Never Knows and sitting at the piano and kind of saying, the bass stays on the C even when the chord goes down to the B flat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, which I really enjoyed doing. And I wrote a lot of early essays that I had to do for the course about the Beatles because I just felt comfortable there. Right. And because there's enough material. Mm. There's enough mm. There's enough within the music, but then there's also enough source material. If you go into the library, mm. there's a lot of writing about the Beatles and some of it's really yeah. bad. But <laughs> a lot of it is really good. Yeah. yeah. And there's enough to go at. So academically, they're quite... A rich scene. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And so, did to go back to Jack's question? Then, did you and Jonathan bond over that? We as did, well? but he also, unlike me, he has a much more healthy distrust of kind of canonizing mm. right rock music and and pop music. And I think he he just he just likes them when he likes them, and he likes what he likes about them. He doesn't have the sort of forensic. This is on this album, and this matters right. because of this knowledge mm. that I. I'm really boorish with. <laughs> he's, he's much he's much more casual with his with his love of it, and much more. I suppose it's much more. Um, it's not more emotional, but he has a more a, a less overthought connection to that band than mm. I do. Because mm. I, this is just the way that I engage with culture generally. I tend to to do the deep dive on anything I yeah. really love. Yeah. I've done that with a lot of ba- like my favorite bands. All it, the thing that they have in common is that they project something beyond the music itself and beyond the individuals involved mm. that there's a kind of collective magic that projects this whole other world aesthetically mm. that you can immerse yourself in yeah so i re i love craft work for that mm. reason mm. Yeah. and i love the beatles for that reason and i love the smiths for that reason mm. i love blur even for that reason there's a sense of sort of camaraderie that comes across as well mm. with all these acts even craft work. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is. Definitely. There is, at yeah. least for the sort of classic period. And yeah. um, that that is something that I'm always really happy to indulge in. I think there's a really interesting analogy to be made with the music of Germany in the 70s and the music of Britain in the 60s, mm. really. Because I think Germany was having a kind of similar renaissance in the 70s. Like I think there's a... It's a, it was a world of possibility. Totally. And it's about building a new history yeah. post-war. Mm. Yeah. And I, I Starting mean, again. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And Post-war I, consensus has everything to do with, yeah. with the Beatles and with yes. European music as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly, definitely. How, how do you feel, see those influences kind of getting into everything, everything? Because for me, it's very like it's very technical and complicated music, but there's a lot of heart, but there's a, there's a quite a proggy element as well. Do you yeah. think there's... I think just the general attitude of the Beatles to change from one record to the next, but yeah. still maintain an identity. Yeah. Only augmenting that identity, never diluting it or cheapening it in any way. Yeah. That's that's something that we've taken on board, really. Sort yeah. of spirit of radicalism. Yes. I mm. yeah, yeah. Um, or we've tried to to absorb that. Mm. And then there are other times when we're just because I don't think we sound like them really, but there are times when we are doing their thing <laughs> right. as well. Yeah. Just just a couple of moments here and yeah, there. Yeah. There's a song mm. called White Whale at the end of our fourth album called A Fever Dream. Mm. And the second half of that song, we are just doing a Beatles song. Really? <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. song? <laughs> it, well, 
it's just this it's the spirit really yeah and it's mm. the, the sound of the drums it's the way they're played and the and the way the backing vocals are sung mm. and and that descending bass line thing mm. Mm. a major chord with a a at the bottom of it and then a G at the bottom of it and then mm. an F you know that yeah, yeah that yeah. thing um, happiness is a warm gun yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly and like so many other things Me a bit of um, I'm the Walrus specifically, something mm. about the sort of tumbling chords, mm. and mm. but there's there's even a way you can make a hi hat sound that makes me think of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this recently. How they sound quite heavy, the Beatles, and I think mm. that that's that's a really good thing. I think it's one of the things that one of the ways in which they've transcended the '60s better than their contemporaries mm. is because the bass and drums are really fucking loud, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that yeah. makes them sound quite modern. Yeah, and I think it's mm. quite. I think with every remaster, the fact that the rhythm section are the surviving members means you get more weight and yeah. presence yeah, yeah, yeah. from the drums and bass with every remaster. And actually, they just sound better and better as a result. And they sound yeah. they really compete. Yeah, you yeah. can put paperback writer on mm. in a club now, and it's going to move people because it slaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. It does. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of that was sort of technical limitations of they always wanted to push that rhythm section as much as they mm. possibly could mm. and now that's why there's just they really shine on the Giles Martin ones because oh yeah you do think I mean Jeff Noyd made the point that it is the surviving members saying turn me up yeah yeah but uh, I don't think that's there a probably is. Yeah. I think that if could take it yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think you also even in the original recordings you get a real weight from the bass guitar from about pepper onwards really yeah, yeah. especially on that album it seems really loud it's really loud on mystery tour yeah i think maybe because he was playing guitar or piano in the basic track a bit more and then mm. he would overdub the bass at the end yeah yeah and he'd be and the last thing to go down, down yeah i i've heard or read at some yeah. point yeah. just go straight into the desk last thing to go down so he's got everything to pull at musically. yeah that's true yeah and I also heard that he would tune himself ever so slightly sharp <laughs> really? just to stand out of the track. I'm sure <laughs> that, that probably isn't true, at least yeah. not deliberately, but I also yeah. don't know how they would have been tuning apart from by ear in those days. Yeah. Mm. So well, I think his Hofner bass was a bit yeah. out of tune. I've got one, Justin. Yeah. You can't really get beyond <laughs> yeah. the 10th fret without having There's a really good bit. This is the George Martin book about the making of Sergeant Pepper. But there's a really good bit about... Which book is this? This, this is called um, Summer, Summer of Love. Love. Yeah. Oh right! It was. It's really good. It was to do. It came out around the time the South Bank uh, special came out, twenty five anniversary. But it was basically George Martin talking about like the whole thing in the sixties was about trying to early sixties about trying to get make records as loud as possible. Mm. Mm. And American records seem to be so much louder. There's a bit where he says he he would get a seven inch and he could see the depth of the grooves and stuff (laughs) like that. And then it sort of so the whole object was to try and get those bass and drums loud mm. and then it says, he says we must have done something right because later on even much later on recording artists would come up to me and say in their turn why can't we get our records to sound like the Beatles they, w- they would listen to the bass guitar on Baby or a Rich Man mm. and say hey man that's a terrific sound how the hell did he get a bass sound like that make ours sound that good 
But really, underneath it all was the driving power of the blues demanding loudness. It's <laughs> really good. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. But it, Baby You're a Rich Man is one I think of with the bass. Yeah, it's just it's like it absolutely looking. floods out the yeah. speakers, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the best drum sound as well. Is actually on Mystery Tour the best drum sound yeah. of their whole career. Yeah, yeah. It's really heavy and hip hoppy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's got loads of top and loads of bottom, and it's really punchy and loud in the mix, and, mm. and that really makes those songs stand up mm. in the modern mm. era. Mm. So you, did you say you have a Hoffman bass? I've got one that's very, it's basically the same guts and it's got a slightly different body shape. I couldn't mm. let myself have one because it's just so synonymous with yeah. one yeah, person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've got a club. What, the bass player from Deerhoof? Yeah, 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 with her. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I've got the, the club bass equivalent, which mm. is the, a different body shape, but basically the same sound. Ah. Ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> As a guitarist, I don't think guitar shapes don't vary as radically as sort of bass shapes. But does it make you play in a completely different way if you're playing um, an old sort of vintage German style bass like that? Because it's the sound really and how synonymous right. that is with, and even the feel of it because it's it's short scale. It's got flat wound strings. The action is relatively high. It doesn't feel like a modern instrument at all. Mm. And then you you play one note and you immediately think of McCartney. Mm. And then you immediately want to play in that way. Well, didn't Which is not bad with flat wound strings. Yeah. Oh, really? And this is something else that I didn't really grasp for a long time. <laughs> always has done, which is why yeah. he has, despite playing with a pick, this really low, pillowy, yeah. knocky, mm. dubby sound, mm. which is so brilliant. And I couldn't mm. understand that he was a pick player in the same way that Sid Vicious was yeah. not Sid Vicious who's the other one no, it was well, Sid Vicious well, yeah. Steve Jones played all the or, bass on Sex Pistols and they're true. like phenomenal yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're great, they're great. Yeah. Um, but you well, know what I mean it's not it's not it, it's not a punky sound at all of course mm. it isn't and and yet he was a pick player yeah and I couldn't get my head around that until I was about 25 when I finally <laughs> understood that flat wound strings existed which mm. is why it basically mm. sounds more like a double bass or something like that and we were just Chatting then while we were eating pizza. I mean, Paul McCartney came, was a guitarist mm. first and then became a bass player. And I think some ways that explains his kind of, um, his bass playing is kind of playing to be heard in the mix. Yeah, yeah. I think. You know, he's, he's not seeing it as a back line yeah. role and it's very melodic. But the other, thing, the other thing about this famous myth Oh, you know, John and George, they said, <laughs> I'm not going to do the voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they said, you know, Famously, one of them needed to play bass. Yeah. And John and George said, I'm not doing it. Mm. And so he picked up the slack. Yeah. The thing is, that's the only way every, anybody ends up yeah, playing bass. Exactly. Like, exactly. It's, yeah, exactly. No one, no one thinks, I, I'm not interested in the guitar. Mm. I want to play bass. Yeah. They are related. Of course they are. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to play the guitar when I was 12. And mm. I remember 
like begging my dad, who was who was a musician as well, um, saying, I really want an electric guitar. Mm. And him being like, well, get an acoustic, and if you stick with it, you can have an electric. And buying a steel string, three-quarter size Honer, which mm. was so difficult to play. Yeah. I really hurt my hands. And, yeah. and that was quite a chore, really. And mm. actually, if I had got an electric, it, it would have been less hard work physically. Mm. But... Um, and also because I'd been a cellist as a kid at school, I kind of subconsciously understood the role of a bass mm. instrument, I think, that, that supporting yeah. line. Yeah. Our school had an electric bass and just a load of acoustic guitars, and I was very drawn to this plug-in instrument, which mm. was cool. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up playing bass, but, but also because everybody else had bought a guitar and everybody yeah. else had bought drums and everybody oh, yeah. else wanted to be the singer. And if you're going to fill in the blanks and join in, which is what playing bass is about, really... Mm. Then you just you, somebody has to put their hand up and say, "All right, I'll do that." Yeah, if you're yeah. a bassist or a drummer, you're never going to be short of a gig, really. No, that's yeah. true. As it turned out, <laughs> yeah. I got to university. I had to do loads of modules I wasn't actually studying. <laughs> <laughs> I remember having that chat in the band I was in when I was like at school. I must have been about fourteen, and there was it was me, my brother, and my friend Daniel, and we all want we all wanted to play guitar, mm-hmm. and it was such a kind of short straw thing. It's like, all right, I'll, I'll do bass, but you have to say the songs are written by me, and I can still play guitar in my spare time. <laughs> like I was really like <laughs> really like yeah. uh, well, a lot of people it. see it as a demotion I think yeah. Yeah. I, I got did. offered yeah. um, offered to go do a little mini tour by a band that I'd been on set a bill with uh, you know nothing major and I was quite excited that they had asked me and then they asked me to play bass and I was such a little shit that I <laughs> was uh, absolutely affronted by <laughs> the idea of it but I really regret that. It's such a stupid thing to do because it would have been such an amazing experience. I but love playing bass now. Oh, I'd also really never it. picked up a bass before. But it's to do with being young, isn't it? You want to be the lead guitarist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you? yeah, you do. <laughs> it's not and I was the same. Was and I'm glad, actually, that I... And I think McCartney did this as well. I'm not going to compare myself, obviously. But <laughs> um, the, the, the underdog role he occupied really well, mm. I think. And certainly by, I mean, there's interesting playing all over the early stuff as well, actually. It's just not quite as distinct. But mm. when you get to sort of rubber soul onwards, it's a really authoritative presence. Yes, definitely. And, oh, yeah. and um, it, it determines the movement of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, definitely the early stuff, there's just a lot, there's a lot of walking and there's a lot of the kind of country boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every now and then he gets bored and just hangs around on the, the tonic and the dog. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The first and the fifth of the yeah. chord. There's um, always loads of variation, though. That, there's loads you know, of variation. You can tell, yeah. I think that's him getting bored, is that yeah. he barely plays the same thing. Twice. What I really yeah. like about listening to his playing is, and this reminds me of the Harrison quote where he said, if we knew we were going to be the Beatles, we might have tried a bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, yeah. which is a wonderful quote. And I know exactly what he means because... There, one of the things that's, uh, that has such a lightness of touch about their music is that it's not overworked. It's mm. not over-scrutinised. Yeah. And, and McCartney as a bass player, I think he's probably pretty domineering anyway as, yeah. a, as, mm. a, as a songwriter and as a musician in the studio and as, as someone who is ambitious for, for his group. Mm. But no, you can tell, no one said to him, hey, Paul, that second chorus isn't as strong as the first. Why don't you do the same thing as he did on the first? Yeah. Mm. And so there are these moments where he makes quite strange choices. Yeah, definitely. And, and it doesn't repeat itself. And it's not actually as mm. cellular. He doesn't quite have the pattern down. But mm. he'll do one or two takes. Well, and he's happy with it. Yeah. And 
there's much more life mm. in it as a result because no one has, has over scrutinized it, yeah. which mm. is really rare for a bass player. Well, in the Rick Rubin thing, he talks about doing something and coming up with the bass line more mm. or less on the spot, yeah. a really melodic thing, and which is one of my favorites. Actually. Yeah, yes, yeah. it's, it's funny because I went down this kind of internet rabbit hole where I was just I'm getting really into like. Well, I really like the Plastic Ono band at the moment since the reissues came out, and I really like Klaus Forman's bass playing because mm. it's very like minimal, and it's like the antithesis of McCartney. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of mm-hmm. kind of googling to see kind of what his reputation was. Like, do people think he was good or bad and everything? And so though I found someone saying like they really like Klaus Forman and they think McCartney's bass playing on something is like is offensive. Mm. This is on some <laughs> forum because they said yeah. it sounded like. He's um, trying to interrupt someone who's trying to talk. So Harrison's doing a solo and McCartney's basically like, I'm here, can I? <laughs> yeah. Which is so I, funny, but it just... I, I sort of can see that, but like at the same time, McCartney's bass playing makes that song for me. Yeah, same, yeah, here, yeah. same here. I think Otherwise that, yeah. it would plod, Yes, yeah. it's so it, slow. Yeah, it yeah. is the song, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, a, me, it's yeah. a brilliant song. It is a brilliant song in its own right. Mm. Um, but it's basically it's counterpoint. It's yes, you it's know he loves his Bach and he loves his yeah. you know Goldberg variations yeah. and stuff. Mm. And that's kind of where that you know he's not punctuating chord progressions. He's no. m- making something really elegant yeah. that mm. he weaves in and out of it and works completely in its own mm. right. chord to the next to the next to the next melodically mm. and find a different resonance within each chord because he's on the root and then he's on the mm. third and then he's on the fifth mm. and then he's on the seventh and then he's sliding up again. he he taught me a lot about how to interpret harmony mm. and I think because he because he was a guitar player because he was a songwriter and he instinctively even if he wasn't thinking oh, I'm going to play the B in this G chord mm. yeah. he, he probably yeah. wasn't thinking like that but mm. his ear was yeah. and mm. It taught me a lot about how you can navigate and lend a different emotional uh, significance to certain chord sequences. Mm, yeah, definitely. At the end of um, it's a very obvious, very basic example, but it's so Beatlesy. The end of "Carry That Weight" or um, "You Never Give Me Your Money," where mm. the chord is C G A major. Yeah, and he plays. The, which I nicked actually. I wrote a song when I was thirteen <laughs> called "Read the Signs." Nice, <laughs> terrible. And here's a clip of <laughs> that. And the chords are the same, C, G, and A. I didn't yeah. realise for years mm. that I'd actually nicked it from that. And um, I was playing upright double bass with my little band at school uh, because it was easier than trying to find a cable to plug into an amp. Um, like in the morning before school and. And I knew that these were the three chords of our terrible song. And <laughs> and I was just playing the roots, but something about something mm. led me to play the B in the second chord. Mm. And it it was transportive, yeah. moment. it really was. It yeah. was it was yeah. when I realized that you can you can make different selections and create a whole other melodic shape to what's happening underneath, which creates a different emotional significance to what's happening above. That mm. was a really eye-opening moment. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the descending bass line thing mm. is is so 
signatory, isn't it, mm. of what they do. Do, do, you, do you know Kevin Ayers at all? A bit, yeah. There's an album he did um, with Mike Oldfield playing on the bass. Oh, wow. Uh, there's a song called May I, and Mike Oldfield's bass playing is basically him going, I'm Mike Oldfield. <laughs> all the way, all the way it's so intrusive. Mm. It's like almost mm. comical. Mm. And like I think that's what some people mistake McCartney for doing, but I don't think he's ever being that, it's never obtrusive, I don't think. No, I don't think mm. it is. You and hum I'm, the bass lines as if they're the hooks, yeah. you know, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know. I think yeah. that's partly to do with the sound and how well it sits with, with the sound of Ringo's drums as well. Mm. And the, there's a lot of serendipity that goes on between the four of them. The, the, the yeah. individual musical relationships are, are really sympathetic. Yeah. That's yeah. why I always find it quite strange that it's like DI'd in at the last minute it does <laughs> well in some cases I think yeah. not, not was all that the time. in the sort of more produced stuff I think course. certainly on Pepper when he was yeah. probably playing piano or guitar in yeah. the basic track and then mm. but sometimes he was, play, was he doing the Rickenbacker on the, yeah. on the yeah. a bit more of the Rick yeah. by by then certainly yeah, yeah. it's Which, funny though the fetishism fetishism of like bass sounds because it's it's weird isn't it because a lot for a time, it felt like there was a really long time when everyone was just obsessed with the bass slot sound on Scott Four. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone's just going, oh, yeah. Flowers, I think, isn't it? Or, yeah. or yeah. And Scott Walker himself played bass. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. what Scott Walker did play bass, but I don't. I'm not sure he's playing that song. But it's, it's weird how that sound. It's like, and the the sound was almost accidental, you know. Mm. And the same with McCartney. But nowadays, it's like, oh yeah, you got to get that bass sound. I've seen a hand. I seen a vision It was reaching through the clouds to risk a dream The shadow It's weird it's, it's like, just flat yeah. rounds as well was that flat yeah. Bands? Yeah. Oh, cool. I think basically all bases were standard issue with flat rounds right. in the 60s. I thought that was Round like a palm came in later. Thing. Well that as well. Yeah, yeah. And they the bridges would have a bit of foam in or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Those Rickenbackers have the screw up bridge mute. Yeah. Which Mute strings and but it's weird how there's so much kind of uh, time and energy spent discussing these things now as if that was the absolute pinnacle of how things could sound. Mm. Which it, mm. obviously it does sound great, but like at the time it's kind of kind of an accidental thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's just <laughs> default. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, seeing those bass amps when we went to Abbey Road the other day, like surely there's only so much tinkering you can do yeah. with, <laughs> with something like that. Mm. How do you see yourself as a bass player in, t in terms of like, do you kind of take a lot from McCartney then, do you think, in terms of what you um, have to the songs? I think that he he has a way of jumping between registers, which I've mm. long ripped off. Right. Mm. Um, sliding up. Yeah, and understanding to... when it's, you know, register is one of the only tools you have at your disposal, as a bass <laughs> yeah. player, really, because yeah. you're playing one note at a time. Mm. and choosing which octave to put that in is actually hugely impactful. Yes. And he, yeah. he tends to do that pretty well and he tends to do it pretty varied yeah, yeah. as well. Mm. Um, and I, I took that from him. I took the the melodic aspect from him because mm. I just, you know, I just do want, want it to be quite bubbly, I suppose, underneath, mm. for want of a better word. Um, where where appropriate, I tend to get reined in by my bandmates. Really? I think every bass player does really. Yeah, I think maybe he didn't. Yeah, because yeah. everything everything the sound is is busy. It is, and so the bass has to kind of find its own mm. kind of voice. And some, you know, I, mm. I love that. Like one of my favorite songs of yours is "Cough Cough." And oh, thanks. Yeah, and the bass is doing so much 
in that. It's, it's great. pretty daft, that basically. Yeah, really <laughs> and that's another one where I thought there are a lot of kind of dum sort of bits in it. Where yeah. You should go drop to the semitone below, but instead I'll jump to the yeah. major seventh above. Right. Because yeah. it gives the same feeling, but it's a bit more jumpy. It's a bit yeah. more mm. disjunct. It's a bit more interesting. songs where like when i first heard it it was like you know you get a song you love and you just have to keep playing it like yeah it's, and like it's a, a bag of sweets that you keep eating, <laughs> yeah. and eating but it's the chorus the way the chorus is like <laughs> like goes yeah. up a semitone you just like yeah. want more of it yeah it's so weird it's like i just a real sucker for melodies that are weird i think yeah i, I mean that, which that's is not unbeatlesy that I yes mean, exactly that, you yeah know, the chords are like g a minor, B minor, F sharp major. Right. Which, is, kind the, of which is the weird thing about it. Mm. Yeah. Um, having that B flat in there. Yeah. Um, in the F sharp major chord. As you yeah. say. Um, do you do you sing when you play? Yeah, yeah. we we're all we it's all awesome. sing a bit. Yeah, we all yeah. have to. It's quite a sort of big backing vocal commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> from everybody. But that song in particular, like that, I mean. Yeah, I, I do think there's a Beatlesy thing in that. It's unusual melodically. It's got the kind of goosebumps thing mm. with that mm. moment, and like, yeah, I mean, extraordinary vocal. Well, Jonathan's voice is quite amazing, <laughs> isn't it? So like, yeah, oh, it's oh, unusual. Yeah. So I wonder how how did that song kind of come together? He had demoed this thing. I think he was trying to ape single ladies, where it's basically just vocals and drums. Right. Right. And. And he or just like wanted that for the verses, or one thing by Emery, yeah. both of which are hugely significant tunes to yes, our band. Right. Like, that's what we would put on when we were drunk. Yeah. Um, mm. And that's still what me and Mike DJ whenever yeah. we get <laughs> yeah. a DJ booking. Um, <laughs> and yeah, exactly that, really. The, the, st the really um, compelling sound of just rhythm and multiple voices, massed mm. voices. Which is a really old thing going back to gospel, isn't it? Yeah. So, mm. um, we took it from that, and the chorus is a bit more fleshed out. Um, it features this sample of John's own voice, which he took from a different song, which we didn't use. Like right. he, he somehow had his own voice, like a little melodic sample. Yeah. Um, and we just worked it up by yeah. rehearsing. Alex's guitar line came from a different song that he just kind of readjusted it to fit the chords of that song right. it's quite the smorgasbord as yeah. well. that's basically yeah. how we do everything right yeah mm. yeah for every so song that we right. release there are probably two or three that have been butchered right right and then recreating it live like what you do is it like you're are you, there's lots of keyboard are you triggering samples or you can, yeah. yeah a bit a bit um mostly we're able to just do it between the because we have a live keyboard player as well peter mm. plays with us so there are five people on stage and we just about have enough hands to cover it all. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when did when were you first aware of the Beatles? When were they first on your radar? And kind of fits and starts really. I think um, one of the first 
pop music experiences I ever had was this tape of nursery rhymes and children's songs and stuff by the King Singers. Do you know? Yeah. Do you know mm. I think the they're still going. Dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Long live the King <laughs> Singers. Um, yeah, and they're they're one of those groups that's a bit like a Korean boy band or something. They just get replaced mm. yeah. when they get to like you're 25, you're done. Next one. Mm. So I think they still exist. Um, mm. And the, I had this. We called it the red tape because it was a red cassette in the car. Mm. And I was three or four at this point. Mm. And it had silly nursery rhymes and stuff on it. My parents had got from the early learning centre or whatever. And they had a version of Yellow Submarine on it, mm. which I was oddly fond of. And then uh, within a year or so of that, my dad bought my mum the Live at Hollywood Bowl mm. tape ah. for her birthday. I hope he got her something else as well (laughs) (laughs) this is probably about 1989 I suppose Mm. so I was about five and I was really captivated by that I didn't really understand what it was or who these people were I just Mm. thought the sound of it was so amazing Mm. and that album opens with twist and shout and it's the the sound of them singing through that arpeggio sort of everyone checking in individually like the beginning of Ghostbusters (laughs) and um and the Crowds going bananas. And what it's just, tour it's is that? Is that exciting. on the 60... 65, I think. That's 65. I don't think I've ever heard that. It's funny because like their recorded work at that point and their touring work was really quite far apart because mm, the yeah. touring work, they're still a sort of R&B bar band. Yeah. yeah. I find playing it, songs I'm, that go back to Hamburg. I find yeah. it it's just extraordinary to think they toured after Revolt. I know, I know. It's, it's bizarre yeah, really when you see it as well. The Candlesticks Pass. Yeah, yeah. Um, the last ever concert in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. They look... Fed up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah. Um, so I had the, I had those very early experiences when I was you know, five, six, seven. Um, then round when was McCartney born? Whenever he was fifty, mm-hmm. ITV put a load of Beatles program. Oh on, yes, yeah. Including the films, the Help and Hard Days Night. And yeah. mm. this was quite um, this quite formative, formative for a lot yeah, of people. I think yeah. so for anybody yeah. of, of our sort of age. I think mm. ninety two. That maybe probably that something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and my parents take them off the telly, and I can still see it now. The kind of ident card before they went to the ads. McCartney at fifty, mm. and it was Help, and it was Hard Days Night. I was more interested in Help because it was colour and because mm. it was yeah. full of loads of stupid. Silliness. It's quite yeah. problematic. Now. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, I, I, I know you've touched BBC on this before. Now, yeah, yeah, we don't need to, to go over that again. I yeah. think. Um, Hard Day's Night is clearly superior. Yeah. But I was interested in, in them as a group of people and the camaraderie mm. and the sort of silliness mm. of it as much as I was interested in the music, actually, yeah. at that time. Mm. So then there was that phase. And then... Then I suppose I it was sort of bleeding into the mid '90s when they had this whole renaissance through Britpop, mm. yeah. um, which I did overlap with. Free as a bird is on top of the pops, mm. you know, um, and the anthologies were on the telly, and I started to get some of the albums from the library and tape them, and mm. um, and then another renaissance again at the other end of my teens, having been through quite an awkward mid to late teens period when I just wanted to listen to American post-hardcore that was in 7-8 okay. 
Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which like, like tool and... converge or something. Well, yeah, a bit of that, but yeah. but like the the slint shellac. Oh, yeah, the I was I only listened to that kind of music for about three years, Wicked. and then when I got to university, <laughs> yeah, I was glad of that. Yeah, um, education. It's a way. pretty good embarrassing phase to go yeah, through. Yeah, that's what you're embarrassing. I phase. mean, there's a whole other podcast in this, but yeah. weirdly, <laughs> I grew up in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, which is a very safe mm. Tory. Yeah. town but weirdly the, the sound of bands in that town was like Chicago in 1992 right, it wasn't right, at all yeah. what it should have yeah. been or what you'd expect which yeah. was fucking great to grow yeah, up with. Yeah, really yeah. good um, and then when I got to university and, and just kind of threw off the sort of India the now shackles the mm. ATP stuff mm. um, I was really glad to re-embrace the Beatles and, mm. um, not that I ever thought that they were anything less than wonderful but there was definitely a kind of I definitely grew up with a lot of people who were sick to death of them being canonised in that way yeah. and didn't mm. think that they got a free pass just because they're the Beatles and there was a lot I understand that yeah there was mm. quite a bit of that in the there 90s was. yeah there was like, I'm sick of hearing the Beatles yeah. I'm sick of Oasis and yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely mm. I can I, understand it I think it's really interesting like a lot of people have that formative experience with that music uh, you know Slint and Shellac because mm. it was like and Tortoise as well mm-hmm. where you're just really because it's a way of getting super into playing. Yeah. Because they were such good players. Great yeah. players, but the, the wonderful thing about it is it's not great players in the way that, like, a hair, like, white snake attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it, everyone's doing their part quietly and with yeah. a sense of servitude yes, to yeah. the greater good. Yeah, yeah. Which, mm. which is actually, I think, is hugely part of what the Beatles do. Yes, yeah. totally. Because I love, I love Zeppelin. I'm not really a an aficionado but whenever I hear them I think wow great players mm. but they're not really doing their thing quietly are they yeah, they're, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, sort yeah. of stinkers yeah, yeah. Th- everyone's playing all over it everyone's insisting upon themselves mm. one of the wonderful things about the Beatles as players was that they were only ever serving the song really. yeah. And, yeah. and nobody oversteps that mark no with one strange. exception, which we'll come on to later, <laughs> for my controversial opinion. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it's strange that Slint, of all the, that, that kind of scene, are now having a little bit of a renaissance with, like, the Gen Zers. Mm. And yeah. bands like, you know, Black Country New Road yeah. and stuff. Mm. It's like, mm. I think, and, and this new black generation midi. Black Midi of, like, mm. really proficient mm. young people who you're wondering where the fuck they get their music. I know, it's brilliant. I'm, I, influence from. And they're, I mean... I mean, they're the same kind of people. Like they're all, you know, they look like they've just finished their GCSEs and then they're playing like <laughs> these incredible like mm. saxophone lines and this whole jet. And I suppose it's the same with the sort of emerging London jazz scene now of like these. Mm-hmm. Is it the Spotification of people's listening yeah. habits? Do you think? Yeah. It's possibly. Uh, I guess you've got more access there to these records. Um, I had to work really hard to hear Spiderland yeah. and to find yeah. it. And when there was like an album that was just like I was in America. So whenever you were in America when you were young, I was lucky enough to go a few times uh, and you buy records. Like mm. I remember getting a Gastro del Sol album and like this really like experimental, noisy. And then at the end, there's like John McIntyre playing this groove and like two guitar lines going in out of sync and it was like oh my god it's amazing and like then like, you'd meet people and go yeah that's like why I play the drums yeah yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? and it's yeah. like you know, it's like this obscure album like just right at the end of the album we'll have to play a clip of it it's fucking amazing yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm familiar with that I'd love to hear it it's on mm. Cracked Crooked or Fly right it's really really good <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's a bit in Revolution in the Head where he talks about how Lennon is um, truth and McCartney is beauty. Kind of. Mm. Do you remember that? That kind of yeah. Yeah, it's dichotomy. Lovely. Yeah. Thing. And um, it seems like everything, everything is is kind of more of a truth band. Like, it's quite, <laughs> not, uh, quite oh, nice. Oh, that's nice. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're really ugly. No, it's interesting you say that. But they're, they're, you seem like it's a, your songs are very, like, ideas band, in a way. Do, do you think that's fair? Or do you um, think, like... Yeah, I suppose so. Um, we worked, in every sense, an ideas band, maybe, yeah. We worked mm. with James Ford, who produced um, our fourth record, and he'd done loads of stuff with... I mean, just he's just done a huge catalogue of amazing records uh, with most notably, I guess, Arctic Monkeys. Mm-hmm. He's basically produced all their work. Um, and on the, at the end of the first day, we all went outside for a sig, and he was like a little bit <laughs> overwhelmed. He was like, no one's phoning it in, are they? <laughs> <laughs> You're all full of ideas. Yeah. And like, wow. And it's his job to, was to try and distill all of that stuff and yeah. make, make everybody feel heard but also yeah. ignored yeah. <laughs> to, the right, to the right levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and, yeah, I remember him being being taken aback by how brimming with um, enterprise yeah. everybody was. I think we've got a little bit better in the last four years since then at um, picking our battles maybe. But I mean, it's not just musically. I mean, the song, the song lyrically. Conceptually, very, yeah. yeah. Very, I think every album we've been quite conscious of what it is we're trying to say and what yeah. it is we're talking about. And certainly since the second record, we've we've known how important it is to talk about um, and to understand even before you put pen to paper or put put anything to tape um, um, what it is you're trying to communicate. And do you do you all write lyrics or does Jonathan? No, Jonathan does, writes all the lyrics, lyrics and we hear them or read them or both and will say, I think you need to maybe think about this or have you thought about this I mean yeah. but Brian I mean I, none of us would ever claim to be lyricists apart mm. from Jonathan mm. he is the lyricist but we do all have some input we were arguing today about titles <laughs> <laughs> but do you, I mean um, so some of Jonathan's lyrics are about very specific things mm. like there's a song about uh, you know recruiting ISIS terrorists there's a song about uh, and an, you Fighting with a fatberg. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're yeah, very pray, praying to a sentient fatberg. Yeah. Mm. That was in the that was in the kind of demo email. It was like, here, here we go, lads, here's a song about praying to a sentient fatberg. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So yeah, they're about course. very specific things, but they, they they don't knock you around the head with them. 
No, the, I think these... that's it's not like so one day there was this sentient fat book. They're not like kind of no that which is like lyrics should be kind of between things, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because actually John and I talked about Martha My Dear not long ago and he was like, What, it's about a sheepdog? Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought it was about a girl. Mm. And it could be. Mm. Yeah. And it I mean it's it's a it's a very tender, sweet, indulgent yeah. love song to a sentient being. Mm. Doesn't mm. matter if it's a woman or a sheepdog, <laughs> as yeah. it turns out. Yeah. And that's a, that's quite a crass example of how yeah. you can broaden things so yeah. that they they are open to interpretation. So if you want to read about the fat perk angle, I mean that's actually <laughs> a little bit more explicit on that song. <laughs> right, than yeah. Yeah. But I think he he's quite conscious of of wanting to make things subtle enough mm. to not get in the way of your enjoyment. Yeah. Of, I mean, it's not Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. No. Uh, <laughs> Martha, my dear, I think. I think we were saying this on one episode. There's a, some some interview somewhere where Paul McCartney once said his muse was called Martha. Like, mm. so he would call like if he'd written a good song, he'd say he'd be saying like he was talking to Martha or something. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, so Martha is named after the the sheepdog sheep is, is named, named after, after the muse. muse. So it makes a lot of sense of the you've always been my inspiration. Kind of thing. Uh, mm. okay. Sounds yeah. like a bit of a get Possibly. out of jail free card. Yeah, yeah like my a song about a yeah. dog that everyone's missing to. I prefer it. I prefer <laughs> a dog. But there's a really good. Anyway, that was by the by. Um, mm. But there's a really good. Do you, do you know Do you know Kaz McCombs? Um, I know of him. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, he, I can't believe I mentioned him on the podcast because no? he's. You know, I love him beyond language. Mm. But um, <laughs> he's, he's got a brilliant song called "Bum Bum Bum." Um, which is kind of a silly name, but it. Mm. it I've been on holiday with a two-year-old who's got the same. Songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it seems to be a song about how you can't write a protest song now, and it's really good because it's basically kind of saying there aren't. Don't try. It's sort of about you can't really have definite answers. You know, mm. the best songs ask questions, really, don't they? Do you know, like if yeah. there's a song that's really, you know, television, the voice of a nation. Kind of thing. I find it's that a bit with kind of hitting you around the head. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Because it's, mm. it's sort of with Tom York, especially. I think that when he's too on the nose, mm. it actually is the only time where you know songs like Harrow Downhill or mm. some of the sort of Iraq Warry type stuff, mm. and that comes from sort of deciding what your concept of an album is going to be before you write it, and then I guess you feel bound to mm. make this an album about. Brexit or mm. a war or whatever it is. Mm. But, so once you've decided conceptually what an album's going to be, how close does it resemble that by the time it's finished? Because mm. <laughs> I imagine something um, like Sgt. Pepper is the example of like starts off as this kind of I amazing think, concept album and becomes something yeah. different. And yet the overall feeling conveyed by the title and the opening track is enough to sustain you through to the reprise and, and mm. life, yeah. isn't it? it? Even though... When I'm 64, yeah. lovely read. They don't really contribute to the... No. But there, there are enough sort of spikes in it, like um, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, that kind of thing, that contributes to this feeling of a sort of carnival or a circus or something, mm. I suppose. I guess our most conceptually hefty record was Get to Heaven. Mm. And John wanted to make a really murderous record. You know, <laughs> you know he... he he wanted it to be terrorised and terrorising because that was the tenor of the times. And it was tempered by the fact that the rest of us wanted to make to offset that by making the music as 
colourful mm. and mm. as vibrant as we could and not as grim, I suppose. Mm. Um, and actually, so did he. Um, and inevitably, over time, the, the, the sort of... The, the heaviness of that message becomes not diluted, but a bit more saturated into a bigger pic, a bigger musical picture. Mm. So that I think we just about balanced that on that album. Um, the other records haven't been quite so. Um, they've not to, had to do so much heavy lifting mm. in their own right. Um, and do you sort of think about what your kind of influence is going to be in a quite an explicit? way sort of musically as well yeah one thing that really surprised me about um chatting to the field music guys mm. and their brilliant their podcast which is amazing is just how methodical they were in the way and they didn't always end up being like that but they were like this is going to be uh and it's today i'm going to sit down and i'm going to write a song like bob dylan would have written a song or whatever mm. yeah each record has a different directive i think stylistically aesthetically musically with where we'll be drawing from certain sources certain influences mm. um this this newest stuff that we're working on certainly does yeah i was gonna um, say the new single is a lot kind of karma it seems karma maybe more oh, is that um yeah oh yeah mercury me yeah, yeah. Th that was that was a song that we just liked a lot and couldn't really fit on mm. the last record it's not in any way indicative of okay. what's coming next to be honest right but mm. that's always the way with us yeah um yeah, we do try to set out certain parameters at the beginning of a process somewhat arbitrarily, but yeah. it's a good yeah. way to to kick things off. Inevitably, it ends up being bastardised. Mm. It does, but it, you've got to have some parameters this far into a career. You have to say, we are going to do this. We're not going to go below this level of energy. We are going to have some tenderness, or we're not. I mean, on Get to mm. Heaven, we we set the low bar very early on, which was mm. the closing track, Warm Healer, and we said we're not going to go below this level of energy. Everything else has to be up mm. and hard and fast. And mm. and that seemed to work pretty well for us on that album. when we toured it which is quite a rare privilege yeah, 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 for yeah. any band I think and how were audiences responding to really well yeah. we could play 11 songs from a new album mm. and I think occasionally in a career maybe not even more than once you'll get um, this confluence whereby the new album is also the album people want to hear. Yeah. Whereas normally it takes an album or two for people yeah, to be yeah. like, I really want to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell yeah. that to Paul McCartney. Well, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's still playing despite yeah. all the danger. Um, yeah. That album was, what, five, six years ago? And almost immediately it was the record that people mm. wanted to hear when they came to the shows. Whereas on some of the other records, you need a few years digestion do you, th mm. do you think that was a combination of the because there are catchy songs on that album and, and, yeah I think Distant it was Distant Pastors it, on that album yeah yeah, yeah, so, yeah. it was super catchy stuff it was stuff that had a lot of radio play it was yeah. stuff, stuff mm. that connected with people personally and emotionally very very quickly mm. it was just one of those happy confluences yeah, I think yeah, mm. yeah. reminds me of 
back in the day, well, you know, in the noughties, seeing Animal Collective when yeah. they toured, and they would always play the next album. When they were yeah. playing, do you remember that? Yeah. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> like they'd be touring one album and playing songs from the next one. There seems to be a bit of a habit of, over the last few years of people playing their new album in like track by track order as well. Mm. In the sort of the first half of the show and then kind of doing the hits. Yeah. Which seems to be... Yeah, we've talked about doing that given that our next tour will have to be our fifth album and our sixth album kind of bundled together because yeah. we obviously weren't able to tour our fifth album during the pandemic. And we'll have another one out by by the time we tour, we hope. Playing, playing two albums back to back, going yeah. off, coming back and doing Greatest Hits Encore. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to reassure everybody that we're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? Have you got a tour coming up? Mm, we've got uh, shows on sale for April of next year, which mm. have already been rescheduled two or three times. Yeah. Mm. How did you find it in that period where... I think touring was, you know, not. We on the were lucky in some respects, and that we had finished an album, and the audio mm. had literally been tied up within a couple of weeks of the first lockdown. So at least we had something to promote throughout right. that first summer, mm. and then it came out in the September, and we weren't really able to to give it a longer life. Mm. Once it's out, it's out. We weren't able to have a touring, a live expression of that music, so mm. it just kind of withered on the vine mm. which was a shame we were pleased with its reception and it charted well and all that bollocks but mm. it, it, you can't make it live in people's consciousness that's a really interesting thing very long. it reminds me a bit of I mean this isn't just me trying to get it back to the Beatles but there's <laughs> an interesting thing someone was talking about the idea of legacy mm. I mean you you know uh, someone was using the analogy of maintaining the Beatles legacy as being like you've got two or three matches left uh, <laughs> to keep a fire going yeah. <laughs> And you can only use one once. You can't use them all together. Mm. You know, but there is a similar thing with with just play, being in a band now, isn't mm. there? You've got mm. to think about how you're going to plug the gaps and yeah. satisfy your audiences and keep yeah. things new and fresh. Yeah, mm. it's interesting. Have you thought about? Have you ever done? I, I was sort of. Inter- I'm only thinking of this because I, I listened to the Deaf Heaven album the other day. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like they've taken such a U-turn. Have you ever thought about doing something like? Like that, because they were doing the kind of black metal shoegaze mm. thing, and then they've just released a kind of quite straightforward pop album, basically. Right, well, okay. it's a shoegaze album, but yeah. there's no growling on it. But like, <laughs> uh, have you ever thought about doing something? Have you ever considered that as like a big U-turn kind of thing? Or Not really, because I think we set out our stall pretty broadly to mm. begin with. Yeah, yeah. So our first record kind of gave us twelve different directions to go in, and we mm. didn't choose any one of them. We just have kind of always been quite a broad palette, anyway. Mm. I think. Mm. So we don't feel the need to do anything stylistically opposite to what we've done before because it's always quite broad. I mean, the mm-hmm. stuff that we've been working on the last couple of weeks runs the full gamut, mm-hmm. really, I would say, of like upbeat, up-tempo electronica and slow stoner guitar music, <laughs> which has basically been our sort of, our sort of twin yeah. pillars all the way yeah, through, yeah, really. Cool. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think because we grew up with, with like Radiohead Mark II as, as our guiding lights mm-hmm. whereby mm-hmm. anything was possible yeah. you can be yeah. a rock band who bought the warp catalog yeah and channeled that yeah that that um that's always informed what we've done really yeah we've just always mm. tried to keep it quite broad i think the uk 
is really bad at nurturing experimental bands, I think. And, mm. you know, mm. I think American bands, I'm not saying they have it easier, but I think for bands like yourselves and Folds, it's sort of, you have a following, but I think people sometimes get like a bit sniffy about UK bands and they would, in the way they wouldn't be about American yeah. bands. Yeah, I know what you mean. Same, yeah. same thing. Yeah, I think it has always been a something of an uphill struggle mm. for any band with any vaguely experimental Mm. Canada does it well as well, doesn't mm. it? Literally funds bands. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> at, at a sort of grassroots level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I yeah. guess, and also, I mean, I remember when you first came on the scene, you were very rarely described uh, as a, a band without Manche- a Manchester band. Yeah, being mm. a and so yeah, that comes a with a lot thing, of baggage when yeah, you're really does. not it anything does. like a Manchester band. No, and yet we also are. I would argue because none of us are none of us are born and bred in Manchester, but we spent our, all our adult lives there. And mm-hmm. um, but I mean, you do, you don't represent the what immediately springs to mind when you say no. And yet, what Manchester immediately springs band. to mind it depends who you ask because mm. I don't think there's any commonality between how the Bee Gees, Ten CC, <laughs> the Smiths, Joy Division, mm. New Order. Obviously, there's an overlap there. Um, Oasis, Oasis Doves, Elbow, mm-hmm. Stone Roses. They, 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 what they have in common is the desire to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. It's the spirit of radicalism thing that we yeah, yeah. that we mentioned yeah. before. Yeah. There is a there is a sort of baggy swagger that, yeah. that runs through some of those bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Roses and the Mondays, I suppose, mm. um, and to a lesser extent, New Order, but. They're, they're very different sounding groups mm. by and large and they've always wanted to do something different to what was big before simply mm. red <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah you know that I, I would argue that we that we carried that torch at least yeah mm. there was there was a moment about 10 12 years ago in Manchester when our band Dutch uncles mm. Delphic Egyptian hip-hop were kind of seized upon by the press as the sort of new Manchester scene or right. sound, and actually none of those bands sound particularly like yeah. either. There's three things. But there was Let's an attitude. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Three, yeah. Let's get them all together for a photo shoot yeah. Yeah. at Stevenson Square, which we did do. But, um, <laughs> we, there was an attitude that was, was deliberately trying to eschew the factory legacy. Mm. And I say mm. that as an enormous fan and hugely respectful of what factory have done and, mm. and um, for for Manchester, I actually lived in the old factory offices flat. Really, so my, I paid my rent to Alan Erasmus, who was who was one of the factory directors. And I, when I got my tenancy agreement, I signed it with Factory Communications Limited. And apparently, <laughs> I had blood. a flat number oh, as a really? tenant. Yeah, 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 as a tenant of eighty six Palatine Road. Yeah, that's so in funny. blood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, the thing about factory that's that's got lost in 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 its recent representation by some of its proponents is that it was modernist and yes. futurist and, yeah. and radical and it was nothing to do with this sort of black and white stripy tourism or yellow yeah. and yellow yeah. and black yeah. I should say yeah. um, you know the, the Hacienda stuff that's that's trotted out um, yeah that's that's not culture that's tourism but like I'm sure as I said before like the, the 90s seemed to be the first decade very broadly speaking where people were looking back instead of looking forward mm. Mm. and I think that's Ma- true yeah Manchester the, the kind of nostalgia of Manchester is kind of missing out how forward thinking 
it was. You know? It was, and yeah. also you, when you actually objectively listen to some of those bands, like the Happy Mondays. Happy Mondays are <sighs> so good. Where, the, where did they <laughs> yeah. get that from? Yeah. 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 What were they listening that to? That really came from the ether, didn't it? It really did, yeah. and yeah. It, they're extraordinary yeah. in that respect. Where are the Beatles at in your life now? Like, do they do they occupy a place now? Do you listen to them often? Are they kind of part? I do listen to them often, and I have a couple of close friends in particular where basically the only thing we do is get together and talk about and listen to the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, what we're doing now, yeah. The mics, Um, yeah. My good friends Nathan and Tom. I was doing it last night with Nathan, in fact. Mm. Um, Yeah, um, they, I guess, represent a certain sanctuary. Mm-hmm. There's always a, there's a there's a warmth and um, and a kind of connection to the sublime that you get mm. from listening to the Beatles, which mm. which I find enormously nourishing. Mm. Um, and it's still I kind of wish there was more music, but I'm also glad there isn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I'd love more to listen to, but I'm glad they didn't make it. <laughs> I mean, there's enough in that short. There's so. there's loads because it's there so homely. Loads. And if there was more, yeah, you know, I always ended it. up you know if I've been away like for abroad for extended period of time I always find myself listening to the Beatles because it's like it's home it's comfort food mm. for the ears and yes but, absolutely but yeah. without being reductive about it yeah yeah know? exactly so I, I it's a very personal thing and it's still something I can enjoy with with other people you know collectively mm. um, sometimes with other bands especially I've had to take a deliberate break because I've overdone yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. like mm. I went to the first ever and I think probably the only ever academic conference on craft work oh really <laughs> university wow cool instead of going to the mastering session for get to heaven <laughs> i was just like fuck this i've heard yeah. this record now mm. <laughs> so i went to aston university for a two-day academic conference in birmingham wow. with a mate of mine who was equally fanatical and after that i was like yeah i think i might give it a rest <laughs> yeah. i think i might have overdone it yeah. like binged on it and whereas with the beatles i don't ever really feel that the speed with which they move from one guise to the next mm. is so quick within a seven, eight year period that actually there's always a different angle to investigate. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know that, um, what was it, Dan Lassac and Scroobius Pip did that song where it's like the Pixies are just a band, just yeah. Radiohead are just a band. Yeah. I, that's really healthy yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and really true. And the only mm. disagreement I have is that the Beatles are not just a band, but they are actually a sort of cultural prison by which to view that post-war Britain, mm. Mm. post-war mm. globe yeah. uh, period, really. Yeah. Mm. I think that they, they encapsulate a great deal more than they intended to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And loads of that has been forced upon them. Yeah. yeah. I think that's... Un- yeah, that's interesting. Forced yeah. upon. Because it's been interesting. It's- George Harrison's always... He will always play down the Beatles phenomena and, yeah. you know, say, you know, we weren't that good and all of that yeah. sort of thing. But I suppose you kind of have to do that mm. if you were there, mm-hmm. because otherwise you'll go insane. Which is why yeah. I think Paul's kind of disconnected himself by saying that, you know, I'm just a fan of the band, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Like uh, teed up the fact you've got a controversial Beatles opinion, well, and Jack you're highlighted that this is the only consistent <laughs> yeah. question. And the clue was that it was that a time. Well, do the clue again. I said, <laughs> oh, "What were we talking about?" 
Than being sort of performative. I said I love... Beyond the needs of the song. That's right. I think that the the 70s spills over into a period where people are indulging themselves more than they're serving the song. And they basically stayed the right side of that. So Mm. is your controversial Beatles opinion about the second side of Abbey Road then? No. Oh, that's what, that was my guess. No, so it would be about the end. I adore that. Okay. Yeah. I thought it would be the drum solo and everything. Well, because it spills over into sort of prog and yeah. because it's mm. long form. Yeah. No, I love that. I think okay. it encapsulates yeah, right, right. everything that's, 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 that they've done up to that point. That's no, it's, it's a specific song as a po- like I think that's that sweet is a is a work of genius. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a classical form. Yeah. I can see why you'd think that. Yeah. It's because of the way I've teed this up. Yeah. No, I, I quite strongly dislike while my guitar jam. That's what I was ah, about to get. Okay. You got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, of Clapton. It's flashy mm. in it's, a way that yeah, it's, never... It insists upon itself. It goes on mm. for too long. Yeah. Mm. You're listening to three or four guitar solos. I hate yeah. the bass. Well. Yeah, it's yeah. not lovely. That's it's a very unusual <laughs> sound. It's almost yeah. like it's like it's got two octaves on it or something. Yeah. It's very picky and cling cling. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, clunk, clunk. It's not really. It's. I think McDonald said, it has an obstinate quality. Yeah, which is yeah. the best way to put it because yeah. it does. It really. It stays in one place. It really insists upon itself. Yeah, you're being made to listen to someone who is saying, "I'm playing the guitar, and yeah. that should be enough for you." Yeah. Do you have that story about? Um, George Harrison and Eric Clapton tried to kind of woo Patty Boyd by playing. Like basically out soloing each other, right? That sounds, <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, yeah. it does. <laughs> That's a, do, do you like the acoustic version on Anthology? I don't. Oh no, I have heard that. Mm. Yeah, um, it's very, it's, it's I do, funny. and that was the demo as well, like mm. the Isha demo, because yeah. they all came out more recently, didn't they? I'm not sure if it's mm. the Isha one. Or it was. I just remember it from the documentary where it played out part five, yes, or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, I never on. remember that yeah. blowing my mind. Because it's, it's so lovely. I mean, that version of it, if it was on All Things Must Pass or something, I would... I used to love it. I don't have a lot of love for it now. But that is really interesting, yeah, because it is certainly a song that is looking towards the indulgence of the 70s, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see uh, a creamy kind of, obviously, the Clapton element, but mm. there's something about that. I don't really know, appreciate the, the presence of a different personality on it. That's the mm. thing that I don't that I dislike about it. Yeah. Why have we opened the door? Mm. We. <laughs> why have they? Why have they opened the door yeah. to 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 something that's going to bastardise the otherwise very. Yeah. I mean, you get. But I mean, I love what sound. Billy Preston does. But same. That's actually, the restraint of him sort of melting into the yeah. background mm. and yeah. you know keeping everything going. There's nothing. Even the solos. The I mean, I love the trident stuff where he really goes for it on um, I Want You She's So Heavy on the Sgt. Mm. Pepper ones. That have yeah, that's recently. amazing. Yeah. Just because it's so nice to hear yeah. him like, properly rip it up. Yeah. But I, I'm glad that's not the version on the album because it's just, you know, he's there to, in the same way that George Martin used to sit in, just as yes. a proficient key player. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, yeah. I suppose that's the other thing. When you picture the Beatles and they've got that sort of perfect symmetry with Paul with his left-handed bass and mm. Lennon with his right-handed guitar and there are four people on stage. Nobody's sitting at the Joanna, so you can kind of accept mm. Billy Preston yeah. as an yeah. as an as an add-on entity. Whereas another gunslinger mm. in the form of Clapton is quite unwelcome. In mm. my yeah, mind. 
And also, yeah. I just don't like him. No. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't like his no. music. I don't like the whole attitude of being yeah. being a guitarist first and a musician second. It's, it's, it's dangerous territory. So that was Jeremy Pritchard's Personal Beatles. Uh, a really, really enjoyable chat. Really loved that one. Yeah, what a nice guy. And just really, just that was a really fun conversation with pizza and beer. I think the pizza yeah. arrived at a really kind of, you know... Yeah, I should have said there is a, there's a doorbell in this yeah. that was uh, very hard to edit out, but it, it hit such a perfect moment. I left yeah. it in there. So... Um, I think we allude to the fact that we were also eating at the same time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, conversation carried on into the pub. Um, mm. A few more extra pints and uh, equally good. Shame we didn't record it. But, um, yeah. yeah, it was really brilliant. And um, as Jeremy mentioned, he, he sort of came to us asking to come on the pod. So really grateful for him. Yeah, that was really doing flattering. Because yeah. it was, yeah, great. Um, mm. Really glad that he enjoyed it. And we hope you enjoyed it too, children. Mm. Um, <laughs> we'll be back next week with a um, really exciting guest, John Bradley, uh, who's a brilliant actor. Most people might know from Game of Thrones and mm. such such like, um, and a massive Beatles fan. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. And you're you're quite I, a big throny, aren't you? As yeah, David Cameron yeah, once what, pretended to be. Really, did David Cameron say throny? He uh, he did a sort of really opportunistic video from the set in Belfast, oh. going like. I'm incredibly excited to be here, especially as I'm a massive throny. Oh, my God. Which, obviously, no one had ever said before. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm really excited about this. Um, I've, I've, I've read the books and seen all the episodes. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. going to be brilliant. Yeah, but a huge, huge Beatles fan. He's, he's, he's done the Egg Pod as well. Um, so, yeah, it'll be really interesting. Oh, has he now? Oh, cool. Might listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we'll be back next Tuesday with John Bradley. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Please give us a rating if you enjoyed the show. Um, you can get an extended version of that episode, as always, on Patreon. And we'll be back next week. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.